How many uh, Bohemian Rhapsody fans do I have in the room? Like, okay, if you didn't raise your hand, I don't even have anything for you. This, uh, this song, right, Bohemian Rhapsody, everybody knows it. This song is one of the most famous, if not the most famous song of all time. Uh, you probably br- it probably brought about a lot of memories. Even when you hear the word Bohemian Rhapsody, you think to yourself, I remember going to the karaoke bar many, many times with friends, and we'd go up there, we'd sing our parts, we'd be up there for 10 minutes because the song is so long. You think about your field trips when you're in the bus and everyone's singing, spring break trips. In the car. We have all these memories with this song. It's interesting. You can tell a lot about somebody's personality by what part they want to sing in Bohemian Rhapsody. You know what I'm saying? Like, are you a poor boy kind of person? Are you like a mama? Ooh. We have very few of those in the room. Are you a Scaramouche? You know, do you want to do the Fandango? I don't know what the Fandango is, but... Or maybe you're one of those people that like to do the, uh, the refrain, like the response. Let them go. You know, like you're one of those people. You don't want the limelight, but you want to be back there like throwing it out every now and then, you know? You could tell a lot about somebody's personality by what part they want to sing in Bohemian Rhapsody. The song is amazing, though. It's so complex. And when you listen to it, it, it's, it just really, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it because it feels like it's 10 different songs weaved into one. It feels like a whole bunch of different genres moving in and out. It seems as if the tempo is changing all over the place. But what's interesting is if you're a musician, and many of you musicians in the room know this, when you study the song and when you really dissect the song, you can tell that actually the tempo of the song is changing very little. It changes less than 10 beats per minute, which is average. It's very normal for a rock or a pop song, but it doesn't feel like that. You know, when you're listening, you're like, whoa, this is like all over the place. It's like acapella. Now there's like an electric guitar. I mean, it's crazy what's happening. But really, when you get below it, it's all working together, and it's not as drastic as it seems. If you've been with us in our series that we've entitled Instrument, we've been going through the story of Esther, and we're almost done. Next week is the last week of the story of Esther. And when you look at her story, I mean, it feels like Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, like it's all over the place. It is just in and out, and things are are reversing, and there's so many different unexpected twists and movements, especially tonight. But what you can tell when you really dissect the book and when you slow down and when you look at it is it's not as dramatic as it looks when you first read it. Because though God is never spoken of and though he never speaks in this book, he's completely silent. He is obviously conducting her life and Mordecai's life. And to Esther and to Mordecai and to everybody else, it feels like dramatic shifts and major reversals and huge tempo changes in the music that is their lives. But as God is conducting it, it's not nearly as drastic as it seems. And this is how God works in the lives of his people. To us, our lives can feel a lot of times like dramatic tempo shifts, multiple genres being moved in and out. But when we take a step back and we recall what God is doing as he's conducting the music of our lives, it's not as dramatic from his perspective as it feels to ours. And this is what we'll see tonight in our text. Last week, we left off with a cliffhanger. And so what happened was Esther enacts this plan. She's going to save and deliver her people. At least she hopes that she's capable of doing this because she's terrified she's going to lose her life. The king and her aren't really in in, in a good relationship at the moment. They haven't seen each other for 30 days. 
And Mordecai challenges her not to be silent, but to go forward and to advocate for the Jewish people who have been, are really facing death. There's a decree to kill and annihilate all of them. And so she, she dresses up. She looks like the queen. She presents herself. The king is feeling generous. He does not kill her on the spot, though that is the law of the land. And he asks her, hey, listen, what, what's your request? I'm feeling generous up to half of my kingdom. And Esther says, let's have a feast tonight. Because as we said last week, Esther knew the king needs two feasts, not one, two, in order for this request to really sink in. And so she has a feast, they eat good, a good meal, they have wine afterwards, and then the scene shifts to Haman. He's the second in control, he's the second most powerful person in all of the Persian Empire, and he was invited by Esther as well to this feast. And he's really feeling himself. He's like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm so rich, look at all my promotions, look at all that's happened in my life. And he heads home that night after the first feast, and he sees Mordecai, who he hates, Mordecai is the one that started the whole thing because he is a Jew who refused to bow before Haman to pay him homage. Mordecai is the reason that Haman tricked the king to enact a decree to kill all the Jewish people in the empire. And so he gets home, he talks to his wife and his friends, and he's like, everything is going so well in my life. I have this private feast with the king and the queen. I have another one tomorrow, but I got to see this guy Mordecai because the decree has not been carried out yet, and I just can't stand to see him anymore. So his wife and his friends say, listen, well, that's simple. You're second in charge of the kingdom. Have your servants build gallows right outside your house. And tomorrow, go to the king and ask him, hey, listen, there's this guy. You don't even know him. He's not a big deal. He's like crying outside the city gate. Let's kill him. I got the gallows ready. The king's going to say, yeah, because he trusts you and he loves you. And then we'll kill him tomorrow. We'll hang him. And then you can go to the second feast feeling great about yourself. And that's where we left off. We pick up tonight in chapter 6 and 7, two of the most ironic and comedic passages in the entire Bible because it is so shocking and unexpected what happens. So in chapter 6, the scene changes. It's the first night after the feast. And in chapter 5, we look at Haman heading home. But now we go to the king. The king goes to sleep, but he's having a hard time sleeping. And he does what we all do when we're trying to sleep. He tries to read right? Have you had this before? You're like, I'm going to read. I'm, I really need to read this book. And you sit down in your bed, you start reading, you wake up and the book is on your chest and you haven't even gone past the first chapter because when you're tired, reading puts you to sleep. At least it does for me, especially if it's like a Kindle and it's just like that, like blue light in your face and you last like two sentences and you're out. So the king says to the servant, Hey, listen, I want you to get the book of the Chronicles. The king would have had this book that would have recounted all the different things that's happened in his reign. I want you to get that because I'm a king. I don't read. You read it to me. Help me fall asleep. So the king starts to listen to all these stories that are recounted. And he hears about this story that happened five years ago with Mordecai. And he remembers this event as it's read to him that five years ago, Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king, an assassination attempt. And Mordecai told Esther, and Esther informed the king and saved his life. And so as he's, you know, groggy, he's trying to fall asleep, he says to his servant, hey, whatever happened with Mordecai? I remember that. that. Like, what loyalty? How did we honor him? Because the kings typically would have honored people that showed loyalty or support or did something great for the king in one of two ways. It would have set them up financially for the rest of their lives and given them a whole bunch of money, a nice house, the whole thing. Or it would have made them a governor over a province. 
And so the king is like, hey, what happened with Mordecai? Like, is he ruling somewhere? I can't remember. Is he living somewhere really nice? And the servant says, we didn't do anything. It just kind of moved on. He's like, what? We didn't do anything. That's very peculiar, and this really irks the king, and, and he probably doesn't sleep at all that night because he's so frustrated by this, and it, and it comes to be morning, and he says to his servant, listen, I, I need you to go find out whoever is in the court, inside the court where his advisors would have been, the people that he would have trusted with wisdom and guidance. I want you to find out who's in the court, and I want you to bring them here because I need to figure out how to honor Mordecai. He deserves something. It's been five years so the servant goes to the court, and guess who he finds in the court? Haman, coincidentally, who is there in the court to ask the king if he can put Mordecai on the gallows and hang him. He's there early in the morning. He's feeling good about the situation. The gallows are almost built. He's going to ask the king, and so the servant comes and says, hey, Haman, the king wants to see you. He's like, perfect. He goes in to see the king, and before Haman can ask the king whether or not he can kill Mordecai, the king says, hey, I got a question for you. If you were me and you wanted to honor someone, how would you do it? Like, what would you do? So Haman is thinking that this is him. Like, this is for him. He just had a feast with the king, you know, just the king, the queen, and him, and he's got another feast tonight. He's like, whoa, whoa okay, I can ask Mordecai later. Surely he's going to say yes, but this is my chance to tell the king what I want. He says, here's what I would do. I would give that person, you know, the royal robes that you've worn. And then I would give them a, a royal crown. And then I would put them on a royal horse that you've ridden. And I'd take that person with the robe and the crown on the horse, and I'd parade them around the city. And I'd have everybody praise them and honor them. That's what I would do. And the king says, go get all those things ready. Haman's like, this is the best day ever. Mordecai's going to get killed. I'm going to be on a horse with the crown and the robes. I'm going to get even more praise. I got another feast tonight. Like this, my life could not get any better. And then the king says this, I want you to do all of that for Mordecai. <laughs> Wait, what? How do you even know who that is? Mordecai. But Haman knows he can't say anything because he has to follow through with the king's request. Imagine how that felt. Walks outside to see Mordecai, who's still not bowing before him. He puts the royal robes on him, puts the crown. He says, get up on the horse. And then he has to walk him around the city, telling everybody to honor and to praise him. The man who would not kneel before him, he is now below and taking around for other people to honor and to praise him. Talk about ironic. Talk about a reversal, totally unexpected. And so he goes home after this, probably afternoon now, and he's mourning and he's weeping. I mean, he's broken. Like this, now this is the worst day ever. It, was, it looked like it was gonna be the best, now it's the worst day ever. He goes home and he talks to his wife, he talks to his friends, he tells them what happened, and he says, can you believe what happened? This is horrible, this is the worst day ever. And his wife and his friends say this, you never told us that Mordecai was a Jew. You made a big mistake. If Mordecai is of the Jewish people, meaning he, he believes in the God of the Bible, that he believes in Yahweh, like you're not going to overcome him. You're going to fall before him. 
you've really made a grave error. You see, they know of the God of the Jewish people, the God that they believe in, and they don't claim to, to follow him. They don't worship him, but they know that there's no way that Haman is going to overcome him. There's no way that the God that Haman worships, that Mordecai worships, is going to allow for him to fall. Imagine how Haman is feeling now. Like, now everyone's turned against me. My wife, my friends, and this is the worst day. And says a servant arrives and says, hey, it's time for the feast, your second feast. So he goes, you know, completely dejected and just crushed in spirit and trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this, how he's going to make this day better and, and kind of build off of this. They're at the feast. They have dinner, the nice wine, and they're relaxing after the dinner, drinking wine. I imagine Haman's drinking a lot of wine at this party. And then the king says, Esther, it's time for you to share your request. What is your request? What is your wish? Up to half of my kingdom. You told me now after the second feast, you were going to tell me. And so Esther says this. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Notice what Esther is doing here. She says this, what I'm going to ask of you, king, is that you save me, that you protect me, that you save my life and the life of my people. She is intertwining her life and her destiny, her identity with the Jewish people, with her people, because she is, in fact, a Jew. They have the same faith. They're the same people. She says, we're one and the same. I want you to save me, and I want you to save my people. And then she says, for we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She's brilliant. Like, this, this plan is so brilliant because she's not saying who sold her and the Jewish people to be annihilated and killed yet. She later says, like, if it would have been anything else, like, if we would have just been servants, you know, I wouldn't have said anything, but there's been a decree to kill us and annihilate us, and do you really want your queen to be killed and my people? See, she's very careful to not push the king up against a wall, to make him feel like he has to defend himself, because it was the king who put his ring and stamped the decree and said, yeah, Haman, whatever you want to do, yeah, you could wipe out those people, fine. But she is brilliantly using this tactic in her conversation to bring the king to her side. Someone, king, remember, I've given you two feasts. Someone wants to kill me and my people, and I'm asking if you'll save me and my people. And so the king, King Xerxes, I'm not even going to try to say that name because Tiffany said it really well, and I'm going to say it different. King Xerxes, it is the real king, his Greek name, said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? So the Hebrew uh, really kind of helps this kind of come alive. Sometimes in our English translations, we don't see it as much. The Hebrew, when you read it, it's very choppy. It sounds like kind of like a machine gun. It's like, pop, 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 pop. And it, the reason it's written like that is because it wants you, the reader, to know that the king is erupting. Like he's launching out of his chair. Who, wait, someone wants to kill my queen? Who has dared to do this? 
wants to kill and annihilate and destroy my queen and her people. And then Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Like, you think so? <laughs> says, the, the person that has sold me to be killed, annihilated, and my people, your queen that you love, is right here. He's an enemy. He's a foe. He's not only an enemy of me and my people, but he's an enemy of you because we're together. You're on my side in this, right? The very beginning of the book of Esther, it says that, that Haman is an Agagite. We spoke about that. An Agagite means an enemy of God. And here Esther says it's an enemy. He truly is an enemy of God. And then the king is so enraged that this has happened that he storms out of the banquet hall. It says the king arose and in his wrath from wine drinking went into the palace garden but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king is so mad like the person that he trusts the person that he just earlier asked how should he honor somebody the person that has been there with him leading well his second in command wants to kill his queen and her people and has enacted a decree to do so. He's so mad he leaves, he goes and he walks it off in the garden. And Haman is freaking out. This, is, this really is the worst day of all time. And so he's now begging for Esther to spare his life. Because remember, Haman has no idea until this moment that Esther is a Jew. He's like, this is all kind of coming before him now. He's begging for his life. And it says that the king comes back in from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. He comes back in from the palace garden, and what he sees is Haman frantically begging for his life from Queen Esther. And he responds, are you going to attack her and assault her in my house, in my presence? And his warriors that are there in the room know exactly what needs to be done. He gives them the eye, you know, and as the words are leaving his mouth, it says they come over and they cover his head with a bag. And then they take him out and they hang him on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai to be hanged on that very day. This is a shocking story right? Completely unexpected. Like, this is such a great twist, like M. Light Shyamalan could not even do this. You know what I mean? This is greater than Sixth Sense. Unbelievable. I mean, just look at what's happened here. Haman is hanged on the gallows that he built to hang Mordecai that very day. Haman wants to be praised and honored, and so he suggests this perfect way for him to be honored and then he has to go parade around Mordecai to be honored. Esther believed that trying to enact this plan was going to cost her her life. She says, if I perish, I perish. But not only is her life saved and the life of her people, but now the king is deeply connected to her. His allegiance is with her. He sees 
that she has been loyal to her, to him and he is loyal to her. The irony is unbelievable. And it's, it's so shocking that it kind of causes you to laugh when you're reading it. You know, you're like, this, this is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. And the reason that you laugh is because it comes from a place of joy. You know, in the beginning of the story, things look dire. You're like, how in the world are they going to get out of this? Mordecai, he has no influence. Esther's afraid to go before the king. She's probably going to get killed. The relationship isn't good. Like, it looks really dire. And yet what you see here is that God used an unexpected hero in unexpected ways to do something unexpectedly good. And it's shocking. It causes you to laugh that it's so ironic. And this is how God's music plays out. You know, God is writing and creating great music in the lives of his people, and it's unexpected, the twists and the turns, and God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to do unexpectedly good things. You see, God's music is like jazz. It's shocking, it's surprising, at times it feels disjointed, but yet as you sit back and you absorb it, and as you watch it, you see it come together and create something beautiful. And with time, a lot of us have experienced that, right? You've experienced great tempo changes in your life, great reversals. You've experienced ways that God has done something that was so ironic. It was comedic. It caused you to laugh because you never expected it. And you can see that. And so you you think about how you felt before. You're like, why was I so full of panic? Look what God has done. Why did I doubt God? Why did I not believe that he was near? Why did I think that he wanted nothing to do with me, that he was somehow punishing me or judging me? Like, look at his goodness. Yes, I went through suffering, and it was hard, and it looked dire. My feelings were all over the place, but why? God's music is like jazz, surprising and shocking, and sometimes it feels disjointed, but when we take a step back and we trust him, and from his vantage point, he's bringing together these things to create something beautiful. And it's amazing when you're at this place, right? It's amazing when you're in this place when you can take a step back and you can see what God has done and you're like, it's amazing. But we're not always there, right? We want to be there. We want to laugh. We want to be excited. But we don't always feel that way. Oftentimes, we're full of worry. Fear of the future. We're full of panic and anxiety We think to ourselves, how in the world can God do something good in this mess? We look at all the different things happening in our life, and it's like, I I don't see a way out. This is dire. How is this going to come together? We've, We've been hearing that God wants to use us as his instrument, that we're an instrument of God. And you feel like, I'm not an instrument of God. How could God use me? What happens is when we feel like this, when we get kind of painted into this corner and we believe this, we miss God's movement in our lives. We miss the way that he's moving and the music that he's creating in our lives. And so what happens is we just chalk everything up to coincidence, right? It's a good coincidence or a bad coincidence. And we miss that God is actually providentially working in our lives. And we read a story like this and we're like, yeah, you know, the music that God was creating and writing in Esther and Mordecai's life was jazz. I see it. It's surprising. It's shocking. It seemed disjointed. It was kind of confusing how it was going to all come together, but God brought it together and he conducted and created something beautiful. But my life is not jazz. My life is pop music. 
It's verse one chorus, verse two chorus, bridge chorus. Like, it's the same thing all the time. It's average. Some may say it's boring. I feel like it's boring at times. Or maybe you're like, it's not pop music. Maybe you feel like your life is like Nashville singer-songwriter. That's a distinct genre. It's not just singer-songwriter. It's Nashville singer-songwriter because you feel like your life is so full of potential, right? So full of potential, but yet you're surrounded by so many other people that are so full of potential, and it feels like it's never going to be actualized. You're never going to accomplish the things that you believe you're capable of accomplishing because the people that you see that accomplish those things, it just seems random. It's just a needle in a haystack. Or maybe your life feels like heavy metal music. There's a lot of screaming, there's a lot of fighting, and there's a lot of banging your head against a wall. Right? We all feel like our lives are, are different types of music in different points. Depending on the day, the week, the month, the year, you may feel like you're, you're living in pop music or Nashville singer-songwriter or heavy metal, but oftentimes it doesn't feel like jazz. Kind of look at your life and it's like you can notice that there was different points in your life where you felt like God was writing different music and it changed because our feelings dictate so much about how we think, Right? And depending on how we feel in the moment or where we're at in life, it dictates what we believe about God often. I just don't feel like God could be doing something unexpectedly and shockingly beautiful in my life. Because as I look at it, it just looks dire or it looks boring or it looks like more fighting and headbanging or it looks like I'm full of potential and it's never going to actually come to be brought together. But though our feelings are really important and your feelings are valuable, they can also be very deceitful. Our feelings mislead us all the time. They bring about such fear and anxiety and pressure and panic at times as we evaluate what is happening in our lives. And I want you to hear something. If you're here and you're a person of faith, you have nothing to fear. Like you have nothing to fear. Why do you have nothing to fear? Because you know what's part of your story is the greatest tempo change and the most shocking, unexpected thing of all time, the cross and the resurrection. That's part of your story. If you believe that Jesus has given his life for you, that he was put in the grave, and that he came forth victorious on the third day, resurrected, you believe in the most shocking, unexpected reversal ever And you know, and you have been promised two very important things when you claim that. One, that God is good all the time. Why why do you know that when you believe in the cross and the resurrection? And that's a part of your story. Because why in the world would you doubt God's goodness if he gave his only son for you? Why would you doubt God's goodness in what you're facing and what you're going through? It looks dire. It looks like there's no way these things can come together. God is good even when you don't feel like it. And you can claim that and you can remember that because he showed it to you by giving his only son to die on the cross for you, to take the penalty of your sin away. And he came forth victorious on the third day. But not only are you reminded of God's goodness, but you're also reminded that God is with you. Why are you reminded that God is with you when you claim the cross and the resurrection? That's part of your story. Well, because when Jesus died on the cross for your sin, it's so that you might be in relationship with God that you might be connected to him, that you might know that he is with you. 
that he is living and active, that though it seems like God is silent at times, he is not silent. He is near. When it feels, as we sung, when it feels like you're surrounded by all of these things that are going to tear you down and speak lies to you and and put a hold on your potential and, and keep your life just the way it is and you're going to be in the same rut and it's only going to get worse. When you're surrounded by all of these things, you're reminded when you know and claim that the cross and the resurrection is part of your story, that Jesus is your story, you know that God is with you that you're actually surrounded by him. Jesus makes this claim to us. It's so important for us to remember. He says, because I live, you will live. Like our identity is one with Christ. You are united to Christ. Even when you don't feel like it, your faith reminds you of that. And so regardless of whether or not you feel like your life is pop music or heavy metal or Nashville singer-songwriter, the truth is by faith, you can claim and know that your life is jazz. It's jazz. It's surprising. It's ironic. It's shocking. At times, it'll be comedic because it's so unexpected what God does. But he has promised you that he is creating beautiful music in your life, that he is good, and that he is with you. You see, as people of faith, you should wake up each and every day and recite Psalm 118 to yourself. Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Read the rest with me. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You should wake up every single day and say, you know what? It doesn't, regardless of how I feel, it's important to understand that my feelings matter. It feels dire. I'm full of panic and anxiety and I'm stressed about what's happening and I'm confused on how this is going to come together. But you know what? I can rejoice today because this is the day that the Lord has made. It's his day. And I know because the cross and the resurrection is part of my story through faith that God is good and he is with me. But see, in order to claim that, in order to do that, each and every morning, something has to change and it's really foundational. And that's this. You have to understand and know that today is not about you. It's not about you. God is working good in your life, yes, God is with you all the time, even when it feels like he's absent. Yes, but today is not about you. It's for your good, but it's not about you. Donald Miller in Blue Like Jazz has this great quote. He says, the most difficult lie I have ever contended with is this. Life is a story about me. It's so easy to think that, right? Life is about me. It's my story. What happens today is about me. How I feel is more important than my faith because it's about me. But see, when you claim the cross and the resurrection, you believe in that. You're not only reminded of God's goodness and his nearness, but you're reminded that you are his. You have been adopted. You have been bought with a price. You are a child of God. And it is not about you. It is about him. Today is about Jesus. It's not about me. How could it be about me? What have I done to deserve today to be all about me? It's not about me. But it's so easy to believe this. It's so easy to stop believing that we are an instrument of God and believe that God is our instrument. When you believe that today is about you, it's 
then God becomes your instrument to create the music that you want to write. And this happens, and you really feel this when, when it feels like things aren't going according to your plan, when it feels dire, when all this panic and anxiety happens and comes on your life, when you don't like the way that God is writing your story in the moment, you don't like the music that he's creating, you think to yourself, how in the world can God be good here? You doubt his goodness, you doubt his nearness, and you say, God, you need to start playing my music. You need to start playing to my tune. But today is not about you. And it may sound unfortunate. You may hear that and be like, I don't really like how that sounds, you know. <laughs> I like today being about me. It may sound unfortunate. It may feel like, ah, I don't know if I can really get behind that. But it's not unfortunate at all. It's actually freedom. When you know that because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and his death and his resurrection, that God is good all the time, even when you don't feel like it. That God is with you, even when it feels like he's silent and absent. And when you're reminded that what he's doing in your life is not about you, but it's about him and that you're privileged to be used by him as an instrument, it is freedom. You are free to trust God. You're free to trust God and what he's doing in your life. You are free to wait. To say, God, because I trust you, I'm free to wait until you do that shocking reversal, until you change the tempo. I can wait. You're also free to be God's instrument. You don't have to wait. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to wait till you get better and everything improves. No, you can be God's instrument today. You are free to be God's instrument because you are his now. And today is not about you. It's about him. And lastly, you are free to enjoy the jazz. You're free to enjoy what God is doing in your life. Even when it feels disjointed, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard to stomach even when there's anxiety and fear, you can enjoy what God is doing. You can wake up and claim by faith, today is not about me. So I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to be glad because today is a day that God has made. And I know that he is good and I know that he is with me and I am free to trust and to wait and to be and to enjoy regardless of how I feel at the moment. Will you pray with me?